Hi, you're tuning in to Rusty Thomas, where once a week he brings the brilliance of Scripture to every dynamic of life. For the last 40 years, Rusty has served the Lord as a father, minister, and political figure on the streets, churches, and capitals in our nation and abroad. You are going to hear compelling truths that will prayerfully build up your faith and equip you to meet the challenges of life with the confidence of God's Word. This is Kingdom Moments with my father, Rusty Thomas. Well, welcome, brothers and sisters, to another episode with Kingdom Moments with Rusty Thomas. And we are round two, ding, ding, with our special guest, Michael Foster, who is a very, very busy man, but he's taken time to be with us, and I deeply appreciate that. Brother Michael, I had a a meeting with a, a pastor down here in Florida, and he's a pretty influential pastor. He he knows a lot of pastors. He's a church planner, and I recommended his book to you. And so prayerfully, uh, as he reads this book, he'll be able to get it out to other men uh, that are in the ministry and, of course, young men who are being trained in churches. So just wanted to let you know. And the way I kind of shared it to him, Michael, was, you know, I don't know if you've read uh, Pastor Matt Chuella's book, The Doctrine of the Lesser Magistrate. Uh, Yeah. So, you know, what that is, you know, I believe what that is to the political realm uh, in the kingdom of Christ. I believe your book, uh, It's Good to Be a Man, is what is needful uh, in this time when it comes to biblical manhood and masculinity. And so the last time we were together, uh, episode one, uh, we left off with the church effeminate, and you made some... uh, very good commentary on why the church seems to be so gay and why it pretty much attracts more women than men uh, when it comes to the church of Jesus Christ. And I'd like, if we can, Brother Michael, to continue this dialogue, this conversation, when it comes to the rest of the chapters of this incredible book, It's Good to Be a Man. And just so folks know, uh, the remaining chapters are No Father, No Manhood, uh, Chapter 9, No Gravitas, No Manhood, Chapter 10, Gravitas Through Duty, Chapter 11, How to Bear the Weight, really important, Chapter 12, Manhood Through Mission, Chapter 13, The Necessity of Fraternity, and Chapter 14, The Excellence of Marriage. So if we can, Brother Michael, let's continue this journey. And I know that's a, that's a lot of territory to cover, and I know time is limited. So, Brother, if you can, just give us some highlights, some, some important truths, some biblical principles as we go through these chapters. So starting in chapter eight, no father, no manhood. Uh, Brother, if you could give us some commentary on that, that would be helpful. Sure. Well, the the way our episodes are kind of playing out fits the book well, because 
chapter one through seven kind of broadly speaks to how manhood was lost, right? So here's God's design. Here's where it gets messed up. Here's the different corruptions of it. Um, and then uh, it kind of answers the question, if masculinity is good and part of God's design, and if masculinity or patriarchy is part of God's hierarchical design of the world, then why is the church so, you know, uh, anti-male or effeminate? And so we wanted to answer that question. So before we could tell people the importance of the gospel, because a lot of people are just thinking about the the church experience they had, and it seems anything but masculine. And so uh, the way you can reclaim your masculinity is uh, through the gospel. Uh, And let me explain what what I mean by that. First off, the gospel, if you even grew up with a dad in a kind of operational, traditional home, but without faith, you have a lot of the natural masculine tendencies present and you'll be uh, good to some extent, but still the, the twisting that happens from sin will be there. And when you, are born again, converted, uh, the Holy Spirit then reorders you now to have those natural tendencies uh, aimed towards the glory of God, right? Building his kingdom, your sex drive isn't just merely for pleasure, but also to, to have children, to bind yourself to one woman and a lifelong covenant of faithfulness. Uh, all that stuff happens there. But if you grew up in a household without um, a present dad or with a dad who wasn't fatherly in the way God designed him to be, whether he's just abdicating or, or abusive or something like that, then you probably don't even have those natural male tendencies down. You're either probably macho trying to compensate for the lack of a father by kind of play acting uh, what you've seen in media that you think's masculinity, you know, maybe you're kind of a Clint Eastwood wannabe or a street fighter wannabe or whatever, or, or maybe you're more on the effeminate side where you've taken after the mannerisms of, of women. And either way you, you have this sort of masculinity deficiency and that's because manhood is something you grow into Um, and it is really handed to you through the example of your father, your grandfather, perhaps much older brothers, uh, uncles or whatever. And if those people aren't in your life, you really fail to launch in some ways, you know, you might be masculine in one area, but really not good in dealing with your emotions or not good at uh, keeping down a job or not good at uh, reacting to conflict in a godly way. Uh, all that is learned by watching how your your dad um, and, and your grandfather deal with those sort of situations. And if that's not there, there's just a deficit. So what, what does a guy do? Well, you, you know, I'm 42, you know, and my, my dad's really old and I don't get to see him very often. And if there was a dad that you didn't have, then, then you, you, you gotta go find a new dad. Well, kind of, you can have those mentors in your life, but a mentor will never be a father. And the good thing is that the gospel of Jesus Christ turns us into sons of God and our hearts are inclined to God and we call him Abba father and God through um, loving discipline 
makes us into his uh, sons in that we uh, we're his sons through faith, but also we become more like him through discipline. And so we use this word bastard in our book. We really offended some people. And that was kind of from a mistake that we made. Um, we reorganized the book right before we sent it over to the publisher. And we used the word clueless bastards earlier in the book without yeah. defining it on accident. <clears throat> that originally came much later in the book. And uh, so people thought we we're just throwing it out as kind of a pejorative or, or a cuss word. We, we meant it literally. So a bastard is someone who is born illegitimate without bearing his father's name. And scripture in Hebrews 13 uses that um, as a way to say, look, um, if you are a legitimate son, you receive the discipline of your father because you bear his name. And anyone that represents the family represents the father. The father wants to make sure that he um, carries himself right and has all the virtues and skills he needs uh, to bear that name. <clears throat> Pardon me. And, um, and so he's, he's disciplined, but if you're not disciplined, it's because you don't bear your, uh, your father's name and he's, he's functionally not claiming you. You're a bastard. So a mm. lot of guys feel like they're bastards. They grew up without their dad giving them the loving um, discipline they need to turn into a, a man. And God though, God will give that to you. <clears throat> Excuse me. <clears throat> He'll give that to you primarily um, through the officers in the church, I think, um, and through the other men in the church. And they will apply God's word to you through the preaching of the word and the ministration of the ordinances or sacraments. And, and through just <clears throat> calling you to develop spiritual disciplines of feeding on God's word and, and so forth. And so to really grow into the man you, you're designed to be, you need to be born again. And, and that means you need to commit yourself to a church where you can grow in the faith and, and be taught the word of God. And a lot of times it's really hard for men to do when they feel like they've been betrayed by authority figures or, or they're telling themselves that all the churches are gay or whatever. But I mean, you have to find a church somewhere um, that will disciple you at some level and submit yourself to it. These digital pastors won't ever do it. And yeah. and sometimes when we hear digital pastors, we think maybe it's these heretics like Joel Olstein or something like that. But I'm talking about good pastors, men like Doug Wilson or Jeff Durbin or, you know, I don't know, like Ian Murray, any, anyone that has a sort of body of online content that people say, oh, you're, someone told me once, like, you're my pastor. I was like, I don't know you. I'm not your pastor. Don't, don't claim right. me. You know, I've never met you. You're not in my congregation. I don't know if you'd like me if you knew me. If you actually knew me, um, I would actually maybe correct you and you would buck against it and say, you're not my dad or <laughs> something like that. Um, right. and, and so that's what we really wanted to get across in that is that you need to submit to God the Father and it's been to God the Father. Um, you commit yourself to the church. And it was, um, I named one of my sons Cyprian because Cyprian, the great church father, said, if you will not have um, church, uh, church's mother, you cannot have God as father. And mm -hmm. I think it's a really helpful quip. So that's what we really wanted to focus on and call men back to the church. There's a lot of hyper idealists out there um, that are looking for the perfect church and, yeah. and they won't submit to one until they find it. It's kind of funny. 
when you look at Nietzsche's Ubermensch, um, Nietzsche had a really bad relationship with his father. His father was uh, claimed to be a Christian, but was really kind of a weak person. And he resented his dad. And I think Nietzsche's Uberman, uh, Uberman, right, Superman, was an idealized version of his father that he's looking for. And, mm. and, and there's a great book called The Psychology of Atheism by Paul Witts that he makes an argument, and I think it's pretty compelling. But you see this a lot with guys that don't have um, an earthly father that was strong, flawed, but, but godly, right? And so they, they expect everyone to be some hero. And I always tell people that kind of follow me online, I'm neither as heroic as you think I am or as villainous as you think I am because they, you tend to have kind of fanboys or haters. <laughs> and I'm like, yeah. I'm going to let you yeah. all down. <laughs> Like I'm not, I'm not as great as you think I am and I'm not as horrible. I'm much more like you than you probably understand. But, um, but so we wanted to push people away from, uh, depending on these digital sources to the church. I would say these on podcasts and all this stuff, think of this as vitamin D or creatine or a little extra protein powder, right? It's a supplement to an existing diet of real world relationships in an imperfect, but still helpful church. Amen to that, buddy. Yeah. I, I really liked how you, um, tried to, uh, I guess, dissuade young men, you know, from sort of the, the virtual reality of manhood and church life to, you know, that personalized community, uh, where you may not have had, uh, you know, you could have had a dad that was just missing, abandoned you. Like you said, you could have had a dad that uh, was abusive or he was just like an outline of a man. I mean, his outline was there, but the substance was missing. And, and, um, but in the Lord and through his church, you can find godly examples and you can find, uh, uh, even a, a redemption in the sense that you can learn, what not to do as a man, you know, based on the failure of your father. And you can learn what to do as a man. I, I know with my own um, children, um, they've learned a lot of good things from me uh, as a dad, but I also see them improving in areas where, uh, you know, I, I didn't have it all together. You know, I, I, I was, uh, you know, missing in some things and, and, and they've, they've recognized that and they're trying to do better. And, and I think every good parent wants their children to do better than they did. And, um, so that's, a that's such an important part of this brother. Um, and remembering, of course, that God himself is a father, you know, to the fatherless and, and how he seeks to meet that need in a lot of these children raised without dads. So we're going to go on, buddy. You have the next two uh, chapters that, can turn, that concerns the term gravitas. And I think for most Christians to hear that term in a Christian book, like, seriously? Gravitas? Um, <laughs> yeah. You know, like, they, they would expect that in an action movie or something, you know, um, speaking of gravitas. But 
Brother, the way that you have incorporated that uh, into, you know, young men developing true biblical masculinity, I, I just uh, uh, was very, very much inspired by, by these chapters, brother. First of all, can you explain the term gravitas and why that is so important in developing biblical masculinity? Yeah, so you actually find a version of it in Scripture. So we talk about graveness. You'll see the word grave in older translations of Scripture. And it's referring to a man's seriousness. And so gravitas is uh, what Scripture calls, uh, you know, grave or serious. The Romans referred to as gravitas. It was a Roman virtue. Um and gravitas is uh, like a man's presence, his weight. And to explain weight, like to kind of understand weight, it's, it's helpful to think about how planets um, mess around with space time. So if you take a bowling ball and you put it in the middle of a normal spring uh, mattress, it'll push the mattress down. And then if you take marbles and uh, kind of throw the marbles towards the, the bowling ball that's pushing down the matrix, it'll go around the bowling ball, right? Because it, it creates uh, the, the pushing down the mattress creates that sort of spinning um, movement. And that's, uh, that's like a planet's gravity. A planet does that to space and it pulls you into it. It has a, a pull to it, right? A gravitational pull. Gravitas is like that. It's the same way. It, when someone has it, you feel when they walk it into the room. I remember once I was in Vegas doing some work out there, and I run into this gigantic black man, and I I could tell he was a celebrity of some sort just through conversation. There wasn't people following him or anything, but it was about the way he carried himself. You could just tell, and and it turned out that he had uh, he was a Super Bowl champion uh, football player. And, and he, you know, he had been in championships games and had had a lot of attention and probably was a big deal in high school and uh, college, I would assume. And he had a, a presence, a weight about it. Cops kind of have this, it's called a command presence. You ever meet someone that's been in the military or someone who has been in law enforcement, there's kind of a way they talk and you're able to guess it. And that's, that's some aspect of that graveness or seriousness. And so gravity is this um, important kind of catch-all. It's like the cumulative expression of all the virtues. Um, and you can just tell you can tell when you're around someone that has gravity. I remember someone told me once that my problem was I wasn't a serious man, and I had to make I made jokes of everything, and uh, like a, a quick turn of a phrase, and it, it's fun. But then I did realize that I was bringing levity the situations that actually did not require that. So you, mm. you know, you weep with those who weep and laugh with those that laugh. And nowadays, one of the things that's so disappointing in so many men, not even young men, men in general, is how everything's a setup for a joke. There's nothing mm. serious anymore. If you have a Facebook, um, anytime you put a status up, the first, the first comment's always some, you know, annoying dad joke or something. And there's always a place for that stuff. Um, but the man right. with gravitas understands the appropriateness of 
of, of that sort of communication. And you can't fake gravity. And so a lot of guys think everything's a matter of um, data and technique. So if I get enough information and I know how to do it right, that will, um, that'll solve my problems. So uh, this is why people are always asking for books, more books, right? Can you recommend a book, you know? And I was thinking in most cases, you probably haven't applied the last book you read, right? <laughs> Maybe just go reread that last book and then pick a thing or two from that and work towards it. And so they think that if they get enough information or find just the right way to say it. So for example, let's talk about like conflict management with um, like your spouse. Um, it wins people are, um, are upset. It, it's important not that you say the right things or even say it the right way as much as have the kind of the right presence. In other words, if you, if you're angry and, and dissatisfied or judging them or whatever, they'll feel that off of you. People will, they know they can see it in your eyes. They can see it in your posture and all that. You actually have to develop the real virtues and not just fake it till you make it. And that's what gravity is about. Gravity is about giving yourself to the hard work of virtue building through, through habits, through submitting yourself to appropriate authorities, through the grind or whatever. And what a lot of guys lack is that women meet them and there's no gravity. The guys have no pool. So there's no attraction. And mm -hmm. they, you know, I always tell people, how does the, how does the sun or the earth get the moon to submit to it? Well, it doesn't demand, it doesn't command it. It has gravitational pool. And, as I, I remember when my wife started having kids that, you know, women, when they have kids, they, they kind of level up and they get even more intense and they, now they've got all these meal plans and education plans and all, all like all this stuff. And as a man, you got to get up a little earlier to stay out in front of her. You got to work a little harder. And that's, that's wonderful to have your helpmate kind of push you in that way, just naturally. Cause I want to be the one that has the most gravitas in the family. I want to be the one that gets up early, goes to bed late, the one that gets things done, the one that keeps his word always the, you know, the one that's, uh, that's praying for the family, like godly Job, Job had gravitas. Um, yeah. and so that's what we're trying to use to, um, kind of communicate this idea of what guys need to get. It's not. You don't just need all these step-by-step -step plans and more and more information. You really need to give yourself to the pursuit of gravitas. And that's what we talked about gravitas uh, through, through duties. Um, the way you um, reflect the glory of God, God's weight, right, um, is yes, by giving yourself – yeah, exactly. By pursuing the triad of masculine virtues, which we say is wisdom, workmanship, and, and strength. These, now, these are things, obviously, that men and women share in common, but there's ways that they work out differently um, in men and women. So, like with wisdom, there's a, a reason that men sit in the city gates and not the women sit in the city gates, with workmanship, there's a, a guy, you know, it's red green used to always joke on his comedy show. If, if they don't find you handsome, at least let them find you handy. Right. Guys are supposed to be able to fix things. Right. They right. get things done. Um, strength. Uh, when there's a bump in the night, you don't send the woman down, you go down. Right. And it's expected that we have a sort of emotional strength. So that's what the, the pagan philosophers, uh, well, the Stoics kind of, 
we're, we're really after. So we'd call that sto- stoicism these days. There, yeah. there is a godly version of, uh, of that temperance, you know, um, prudence. Um, and so these are the things that you want to go after. And that's how you develop gravitas, you know, by going after these things, develop your wisdom. So wisdom is knowledge applied in, in a, in a, in a good way. Workmanship is taking all the different abilities and talents and opportunities God's given you and, and becoming someone that's really good. I like the idea of craftsmanship too, where um, it's not just about getting cash, but it's about doing something well. And a craftsman say he's a painter and he looks down and sees a baseboard's got a little bit of paint on him. That's going to kill him. He's going to go down there and fix that. He can't take that. He wants the baseboard to look just right because he's a craftsman. He takes pride in his job and he does the job right. And a craftsman, when you're around a true craftsman and whatever their craft is, it doesn't really matter. Um, you respect it and you learn how hard it is to be as good as they are. They have gravitas, they have weight. Um, strength is another one, just a guy that has, I don't care if it's physical strength or emotional strength. Uh, all those things are a way that we accumulate, accumulate kind of presence, a godly presence. And, and those flow out of the, you know, we talked about duties, envisioning and planning, um, building and supplying, guarding and fighting. Uh, this is a chapter that I thought was a little more mechanical than most of our chapters. So either people love this chapter or hate it. Um, it's my least favorite chapter. <laughs> this is the <laughs> so it's always funny. Right here. This is, uh, I think uh, a lot of this came from some notes that I, I handed over to Nan and he developed it a little bit more. And then we, I was like, okay, I guess this fits. Let's, let's put it in there. So that's how that got in there. But I think the call is just for a man to, to go out there and, and, and go after it. How do you develop gravitas? You throw yourself into life. Amen. Amen. Well, I, um, as you study scripture, you do see Ben, you know, like Job. And, and the reason why, brother, I said gravitas in a book for a Christian, because most people just think of it just as a, like a prideful swagger, you know. Uh, sure. But it's much more than that. And you see it like in the life of a man like Job. Um, you know how we typically look to Proverbs 31 and tidy, Titus 2 as, you know, kind of the passages, you know, speaking of womanhood and, you know, a godly wife, a godly mother. And I, um, I kind of look at Job 29 sort of like as the manhood passage and it's interesting because it says that when he when job walked into a room if there were young men who you know were doing mischievous things his very look his very gaze like scattered them you know and and then when he would talk you know people would you know put their hand over his their mouth you know even princes Mm -hmm. um and so you see, like in Job 29, this great example of godly biblical masculinity that has uh, incredible gravitas. And, and then one of the things that you brought out in the chapter that I liked and when you were talking about the difference between the kabod, the weightiness of God's presence, his power, 
that, you know, that that's a gift that is given through Christ, you know, in our salvation. But what you were challenging young men and men is, listen, biblical manly gravitas, that's not a gift. That's that's something that's earned, you know, by mm-hmm. persevering, staying faithful, keeping your integrity, you know, uh, you know, a man of your word, so to speak. And uh, it was so, so good, brother. So we're going to move on from there and we're going to go to chapter 11. And this is uh, this is an important uh, chapter uh, because, you know, for all of humanity, we, you know, we live in a fallen world and we contend against a sinful nature and we have a lot of struggles. And I tell young men all the time, you know, life is a series of problems, you know, that we have to resolve. You know, we have to get used to that idea, you know, and for a lot of us, that's, that's a difficult reality to, to grasp, but that's part of what it means to, you know, be faithful as men. And so you have this chapter called how to bear the weight so, brother, can you just touch a little bit on how important that is as men? Yeah, so I think when you start having conversations about biblical masculinity or femininity to people, especially that are in their 20s or 30s, and they start to recognize where they lack, it is kind of overwhelming. And it can make people angry. And there's this whole idea of the red pill. It's from the movie, The Matrix. So blue pill keeps you in this kind of imaginary world that while not perfect is more comfortable. And the red pill opens your eyes to see the real world for what it is, which is kind of dark and nihilistic, but at least it's the real world. And when people take this red pill, they have a kind of a rage and anger about how things are. And I think those men who grew up without dads, those men that are realizing how far gone the church is when it re, uh, relates to sexuality, egalitarianism, feminism, etc. cetera. Um, when their eyes are open, they do kind of go through a rage and they talk about all the problems with society. That's what they're focused on the most. And they can kind of adopt a victimhood sort of posture towards everything. And we wanted to point out, like, yeah, it is true that, um, that, that you were failed in ways by your father, by society, by whatever. I mean, we live in a, in a world full of single parents, broken homes, wicked government schools, babies murdered everywhere. I mean, our country's built on a pile of dead babies. And um, it's a wicked place. And you can wake up and just be furious. But um, those things that you didn't have control over, whatever, right? Grieve them. Be mad about them. But let's be honest. Since the things that you have had control over, uh, those things are your responsibility, right? They're They're your fault. And so take responsibility there. And here's what I would say. If you're born into a broken kingdom, a broken society, it may not be your fault, but it's still your responsibility to do something about it. Yeah. And so we're, we're telling men to take heart that it's God, 
I always told people during 2020, I said, what a wonderful time to be alive. Isn't this wonderful that we get to be alive in this moment? I mean, where else would I want to be but the very time that God put me in? I always hear people say things like, oh, I wish I was born in the 1600s or 1800s. I don't. I like the internet. I like air conditioning. I like beef jerky. I like a lot of modern conveniences. Um, I probably would just die back then of something, you know. <laughs> but, um, <clears throat> but more importantly, my sovereign father put me here for his glory and my good. And, and so calling men to, um, to see that they're not the first generation uh, to be the product of failed fathers. I mean, you look at Judges 2 yeah. and a generation rose that didn't know the Lord. How'd that happen? Right? Yeah. I mean, there had to be some level of failure in the households for a whole generation to not know the Lord. Um, so the question is, do you uh, just point the finger and extend that failure into future generations or do you take responsibility for yourself and for the world that God's put you in and make ground when you can, right? Right. And so it was just a call to personal responsibility. And I think that's, um, you know, you can, part of being a man is taking responsibility for yourself. And as you take greater responsibility for yourself, you build up the sort of discipline and ability to take responsibility for others. Amen. Amen. So critically important. And uh, we just do have to get used to the idea that, um, yeah, as men, um, you know, our main call is to fulfill our duties, you know, be responsible and not whine or pout or get upset when, you know, life interferes with our great plans, you know. And mm -hmm. take it out on our family. You know, I, I was, yeah. as a young man, I was very much guilty of that. I was very good at handling a lot of the, uh, you know, huge, difficult things in life, fighting the battle, you know, the government and pro-aborts and sodomites and the media and the apostate church and, you know, all that kind of stuff. But it was the little foxes that spoiled the vine. Uh, with me, brother. And, um, and I know sometimes as men, we can um, deal good with things outside the home and, and bear the weight fairly well, but somehow coming home, dealing with the wife, dealing with the kids, you know, we, and I guess we're just so familiar with them. We just mm -hmm. feel like we could unload on them. And I know that I was very much guilty of that as a young man. And uh, interesting enough, the th things that won my kids over more than my great teachings and, and exemplary life as a minister is when, you know, I got on my knees, looked him in the eye and told him, you know, daddy's wrong. You know, daddy sinned. Yeah, you did some boneheaded things. You were disobedient, but that didn't give me permission to unload on you. And I'm sorry I did that. And um, and I think that's uh, really important, brother, you know, when we're when we're trying to be responsible, you know, as a man, as a husband, as a father, as a minister and all of our other duties. So 
Praise be to God. Help us, Lord, bear these burdens and do it well. Okay, so we're going to go on here. We got uh, three more chapters, and very important. Every single chapter is important. Uh, but chapter 12, Brother Michael, you have manhood through mission. How important is it that young men have vision and mission guiding their life? Yeah, I think it's the most important thing um, in our book. Or like, if you could, if you take away one thing outside of the gospel, that would be probably a big thing. Um, so, I, I, as I did, kind of the research for this book was I read a bunch of other books, um, but I also did hundreds of hours of online or not online on, over the phone counseling some of it was really just listening to guys in their struggles um, more so than counseling and as i did that i i started to see kind of trends and patterns arise as you do and for example i'll give you one uh when i was dealing with guys there are marriages that were like almost at the point of divorce I'd always ask them, what, what do you guys do together for fun? You know, um, what is it you guys do? And it was interesting that they, they really didn't do anything anymore. They didn't have any like shared projects. They, um, I was like, do you like, they maybe watch television together um, and, and take the kids from box to box, field to field, whatever. And there was no shared mission anymore. I kind of had lost focus of that. And, and what's interesting is that God gives this call to Adam first. He says, go be fruitful, multiply, um, have dominion over the earth. And that, that was given, we know that was given to Adam first because of the timeline of Genesis 2. And then God helps Adam see that he cannot do that by himself. So dominion is not merely a masculine thing. It's a, a, a mankind thing. Okay. Welcome to the wonderful world of modern technology. Uh, not quite sure what happened, but it, we got kicked off. Uh, but Michael's still here, and we are persevering and pressing on. So, Michael, before we got kicked off, we were dealing with manhood through mission. So just take it up from there, buddy. Sure. And just kind of to briefly recap. So the second half of the book talks about regaining manhood. So chapter eight is really on how the gospel reorders your life, um, how those God-given natural tendencies are now disciplined by the word of God, by the a Holy Spirit working in you, and that in itself uh, will take sexual tendencies that say it's okay to want to have lots of sex, uh, but you have it with one woman and not lots of women, right? It, okay. it, it's for marriage. It's for that life together. It's okay to to want to be strong and even in a sense to be aggressive, but it's for the kingdom of God and it's towards evildoers and, and not towards um, those that uh, should be under your protection. And that if you, if you didn't have a father, now God is your father. And through the discipline of your local church, you, you grow into, um, into the man that God would have you be. 
And that leads to you producing the idea of gravitas, like a planet produces gravitational force through its mass, through its weight, it, um, it, its presence is felt. And uh, a serious man, a grave man is a man that has gravitas. He's a man that not everything's a joke, but he also doesn't take himself uh, as a so self-serious where he can laugh at himself. He knows he has real um, sins and he, he trips over his own feet sometimes, but he also is a guy that can get things done. And that, that comes through throwing your life, throwing yourself at life and developing virtues, um, virtues like wisdom, like not just having knowledge, but knowing how to use it and workmanship, not just having raw abilities and talents, but developing them for the glory of God and, and strength, not just having knowledge and workmanship, but the vitality and um, commitment to see those things through to to the end, and then that <clears throat> brings a lot of weight into your life because things are have been cursed, and so all of work has curse on it. Um, you go to fix your brakes, and you say it's going to take a second, and then you know you, you strip a bolt on accident. You go to record a podcast, and the podcast drops in the middle of it or whatever. <laughs> all of life is full of difficulty. And it's really hard to do that, especially when you live in a society and culture that uh, brands masculinity as toxic or evil or um, inherently dangerous. And, uh, and so we wanted to know that, yeah, I know this is hard and I know people are against you and you've been born into kind of a world on fire. And while it's not your fault, you didn't cause it. It is your responsibility to do something yes. about it, starting with yourself. Yes. And um and that God, through his, through his wisdom, placed you right now where you're at. And so that kind of leads up to this idea of mission, where Adam was placed in the garden first, given um, this great creation command, told to uh, be fruitful and multiply, and to have dominion. And Adam can't do either of those things by himself. He can't, um, obviously he's not asexual, he can't cut off his finger and it grows into a person. That happens through coitus. Um, and even dominion can't doesn't happen without Eve. That's something that takes uh, both man and, and woman. And when scripture says it's not good for a man to be alone, it's not saying that Adam is missing half of himself, right? right. Men are complete. Women are complete. But mankind isn't complete without man and woman. You can't fulfill the creation mandate without man and woman. And that's why childbearing is so central to the design of God. People say, well, can we make disciples of, of people that aren't our kids? Yes, but those people were born. Someone made those people. Right. <clears throat> so there's, there's no creation. Uh, there's no um, great commission without the creation mandate. Those people have to come into this world. And, and so we, um, we express uh, the creation mandate through our mission and the way we defined it. And this is a chapter, again, if I had to rewrite it, I'd be a little more specific because are we talking about vocation? Is that the same thing as a mission? We want a mission to be a little more ambiguous, a little gray, because we think it encompasses the whole of things. But I believe the way we um, defined is uh, a mission is your best effort at wisely integrating your interests, skills, circumstances into a personal vision for exercising dominion over what God has given you. So that's basically what we're saying is like every who you are plus where God's put you 
bringing those two things together to live a life of productivity for God's glory. That's your mission. And so missions can they kind, of, kind of be like Russian nesting dolls, you know, where it's a doll inside a doll inside a doll or, or concentric circles. So there's the Missio Dei, the mission of God, right? This whole, um, the chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. That everyone is to fulfill that mission, but we do it through different stations, vocations and abilities in this life. Uh, my wife has a mission and it's expressed as being a daughter of God, as being my wife, being a mother to my children. Uh, part of mine is being a son of God, um, being a husband to her, being a father to my kids. Uh, she has her vocation as a homemaker, right? She creates this wonderful household environment. I have my job both as someone that works in sales management and also as a pastor, um, so th- all those are aspects of of my mission. And what I found and when I talked to a whole lot of guys is that they didn't they almost wanted the woman first before they had the mission. Yeah, that the woman would give them would actually give them the mission. But that's it's 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 mission then and then woman. And it's because a woman is a helper and to help a guy he has to be going somewhere. And I always tell guys that there's no submission without mission. Right? How can she submit herself mm. to something that's not going anywhere? And that's why um, a lot of times the nice guys that worship women and put them up on a pedestal don't get the girl. And maybe a, a guy that comes across as a jerk does. And that's because a jerk doesn't need the woman per se. He, he's going to go do his own thing. And there's a sort, certain disregard for her that she finds refreshing, not because of the disrespect. That's not it. It's just because he's a guy that's going somewhere and a woman wants to go somewhere with the man. She wants to get something done. She wants to be part of something. Um, that's great. She wants a man who has a mission that's worthy of her commitment. Men, women are attracted to that. And I remember when I got my wife, a <clears throat> part of me, when I got Emily, I kind of accidentally did this. And, um, I, we were in high school and I said, look, I'm going to go into the ministry. I'm going to probably be hated by a lot of people because I'm going to say things other people won't say. And the ministry doesn't tend to generate money. So there's a good chance that we will be poor. And the ministry requires me to be away. Um, So there's going to be times when uh, I'm just not going to be around. And um, so I don't even want to date someone who couldn't imagine being married to someone like that. It's just not, we can just be friends. It's not worth our time. And she told me that like, she kind of swooned because here's this guy, he's going somewhere. He's got this vision and whatever. And, and, uh, and so I think guys actually being driven to, to like work out God's glory through their particular gifts and opportunities is, is huge. And so you just have to start somewhere, right? Like, um, Work on your spiritual um, disciplines, reading the Bible, prayer, m- biblical meditation physically, you know, start doing a hundred work towards a hundred pushups or start um, doing a weightlifting routine, get out of debt, save some money, uh, develop your vocation. If you're a coder, learn how to code um, in, in different code or new ways or whatever. If you're a sales guy, work on your writing capabilities. You know, if, um, if you don't have very many guy friends, um, ask, ask a guy to go hang out or if he needs help, be the guy that shows up to help him. Right. Just set some goals to start kind of growing towards 
this, this um, mission. I like to do things in five years. I think about, I, I think, where do I want to be five years from now? And I reverse engineer it and ask what will it take to get there in kind of these broad categories. And then I, of course, correct along the way that the main thing is just start moving that direction. Don't right. really get stuck on the particulars adjust as you go and just take steps. Well, you, you, you mentioned in that chapter, brother, that mission is not a map and, and how, you know, we need wisdom. I think you presented it like the, the goal of vision and mission may be a mountain on the horizon, but you don't necessarily have a map to get there. And through wisdom, you have to figure it out. Um, and uh, can you can you expound a little bit upon that, brother? Because I think a lot of people, they just want, you know, steps. You know what I mean? Steps to do this, yeah. steps to do that. You know what I mean? Like you said, you got a lot of young men looking to, you know, obtain gravitas or become men. And they do the YouTube videos and stuff like that. You know what I mean? Uh, but there's not really that sort of on the job training with fathers and apprenticeships. And, um, so kind of, kind of expound brother difference between like, you know, having sort of a map to fulfill mission and really how they're not the same. Yeah, they're not. And, uh, so I always tell people we, we, we give you a, a compass, point to the right direction, and a topographical map. We let you kind of know the lay of the land, and then you kind of figure out as you go, not you know step by step. I think um, step by step is it uh, assumes that everyone kind of gets to the places the same way, that, that there's this clear way to do things, and there's just a thousand ways to kind of – skin a cat, you know what I mean? And right. uh, someone was asking me, how do I do the things I do? Because I have a large family. I have a, a decent sized church. You know, I think we're almost 300 people. Um, I, you know, I, I run a, a department uh, for a company and, um, you know, write and do things. And uh, I didn't possess all those skills overnight. Uh, over time, I got really good. I, so I, uh, when I became a collector, I went to uh, Citibank. I needed to get a job so I could marry Emily. And I was, I was an electrician, but I was terrible at it. You can be bad at a lot of things. Don't be bad at working on with electricity. <laughs> so I quit that. And Citibank was hiring. Um, Citibank was hiring customer service people. So I took the test, but they had already filled all the positions. And I, they said, well you could be one of our collectors and who wants to be a collector, right? Like the vultures picking at the bones, but um, mm -hmm. <clears throat> it paid good, you know, decent. So I was like, sure, I'll do that. So turned out I had a knack for it. Um, I was really good at it. And then I applied to a, a different company, Sally May and went from, you know, I was making well over six figures back in the early two thousands when I was like 22 years old, you know, 23. Wow. And, and I was just really good at it and I got bored and uh, I said, I wanted to quit. And they said, can you, anything we can do to keep you? And I said, sure, let me create my own job. And I said that, you know, tongue in cheek. And they said, sure, we'll bring in, you know, bring in a, uh, a pitch for us next week. So I go home and I, and I write out how I would train people to, to be better at collections. And then I said, if I can't improve them by 51%, you don't have to pay me. You can just pay me. 
$250 for every person I can improve in 30 days time, 51%. And, and so, and then I said, I only have to work these many hours and I can come whenever I want. <laughs> so they agreed to it. <laughs> um, and it was crazy. So I did that and, um, and learned that I was really good at dealing with conflict, really good at keeping my cool under pressure and, and kind of teaching and communicating and, and all this. And, um, and then I'm at, at heart, just kind of a natural networker always have been, um, just, uh, I think that came from street preaching. I think it came from, we used to do a skateboard ministry and we'd end up hanging out with friends or meet, make meeting people like at some random town and then hanging out with them and becoming friends and keeping up over time. And so that, um, that, that skill of networking is a big deal now because I know the people that are in my, my digital Rolodex is kind of next level. Um, and, uh, and then I, um, I'm really good at team building. I'm not a lone wolf. I'm a people person. So uh, when I started, it's good to be a man. I thought, okay, I could do some of this, but I needed someone else and non possessed, non and I are kind of opposites in a lot of ways. And I'm very intuitive, emotional sort of guy. And non is extremely linear, um, analytical, extremely logical. Um, I, I tend towards pragmatism in a lot of ways. Uh, so it produced the book well because we worked together. All those things have made the life I live now possible. Um, and they all were developed over years. And it's what did I want? Well, I love business and I love church planting. And I love helping men. And that was kind of my mountain, right? Yeah. And I, I, I took a bunch of other pathways to get there that ended up being dead ends for who I was temperamentally. Or I, I have to, I've weaponized my ADHD for the kingdom, right? <laughs> I'm the sort of guy that needs a lot. And I, it, the, I'm, I don't operate well without a lot on my plate. Mm. Um, I just need it to, to not get into trouble. Um, yep. to not, you know, it just keeps me very, uh, disciplined. And, um, and so that's the kind of roundabout pathway I took. I mean, I didn't know I was going to be really good at sales and negotiations and stuff. That was, I, I wanted to be a history professor when I went to college. That's why I studied history. I was going to get my PhD and, and, and write history books. Um, but life had another plan. So you kind of have this mountain and you may have some real specific goals, but mine were, you know, serve the Lord in the church some way, help men and do entrepreneurial business stuff. And, and so that's that's the thing. Like you can really limit yourself sometimes um, by trying to limit these steps and uh, into this very me mechanistic way. But life is much more organic and flows. Yeah. And that was what we're trying to get across to the best of our ability in that chapter. So, yeah. And I think, you know, overall you, 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 you talk about the ultimate sort of vision and mission is the, you know, the, the creation dominion mandate, you know, the cultural mandate, whatever terms you want to put. And of course, as a Christian, you know, it's fulfilling the great commission. That's the task of the church and, and so to have young men who who see 
the ultimate goals, the ultimate vision and mission and giving themselves to it. And as you're saying, brother, it's, it's, that's going to look differently uh, with different men because we have different skill sets, different callings, different anointings, you know, things of this nature. But to have that as the source of your soul, like you said, it's not just important for men, but it's really important for women too. And you, you've explained why that's so important. Uh, I'm actually reading your book uh, to my daughters. Now I got to change a little bit of the language because you're, you know, you're talking frankly to men, you know, but I'm doing that for a reason, brother. I, 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 I want them to be attracted to biblical manhood, to be attracted to biblical masculinity and, uh, and certain things to look for, you know, when they're mm. going through the vetting process you know, of, of trying to find a godly husband that will one day be a father uh, to their children. And so this notion of mission and vision is so critically important. So brother, we got two more chapters. We got the necessity of fraternity. And this has been one of my sort of pet peeves in, 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 in and it's really been a source of, of grief in the sense that what the homosexual agenda has done mm-hmm. when it comes to, you know, having intimacy with the same sex. In other words, you know, men loving men. Um, and uh, one of the casualties through the homosexual agenda is like nobody wants to show affection to the same sex because then you're just going to be labeled a homosexual, you're a sodomite. And of course, biblically, that is not true. And I, I really liked this chapter a lot, brother. Uh, can you kind of go through the necessity of fraternity and, and how important that is in the developing of biblical masculinity? Yeah, so uh, there's a great article called Requiem for Friendship by Anthony Esselin or Tony Esselin. And I read that years ago, and, and that was his point where uh, basically homosexuality has eroticized all relationships. And, and um, it, me and a lot of my guy friends do tell each other, they love you, man, um, when we're getting off the phone. Those of us have been close friends for many, many years. And, uh, and you look at these old pictures in Anthony's uh, art- article, and there's like guys holding hands. They used, guys used to do that, and it wasn't. It wasn't sexual. Now it's it, seeing it grosses us out because everything has been twisted. And you'll hear that when they talk about um, when they hear about uh, uh, David and and uh, Jonathan, they'll yep. they'll imply that it was a sexual relationship. Of course, it's not. Um, it's just guys can be really close. Men can uh, have a sort of intimacy. There's a same sex intimacy that's unique. So, you know, there's the, the sisterhood. They share in um, uh, experiences that we don't. Having a baby, nursing a baby, um, 
having this uh, the cycle that has their you know their emotions go up and down their their body go through changes every month um entering into that time entering out of that time um just there's there's the the life of a woman that's different than the life of a man it's different being a wife uh, to a husband than it is being a husband to a wife and there's parts of my wife that i'll never fully understand i'll understand it at a conceptual level but that's true of men as well like war should be just for men uh not for women unless it breaks across the boundaries and like it did with jl and you've got to do something um but but generally it's it's men fighting men and and men um connect that way like men connect through you know um the integrated workforce has been a huge problem first work was uh, divorced from the home and then it was um and then it was usually just men working together, but then they started to integrate the workforce uh, big time after World War II. And yep. uh, the majority of, uh, of cases of adultery happen at work, right? Um, and that's because when men and women work together, uh, they, they make deep connections. And it used to be they worked together in a home. And that's why having a productive home is so important. That's why having that shared mission is so important. They connect and whatever. And so a secretary or even just another salesperson that's a, a woman ends up respecting her coworker or whatever because they see their drive, maybe their station, position. But, um, but work is formative for relationships. And so for guys, when we uh, go, you know, we're on a sports team together or you work the sales floor together or in the case of this chapter, we cited them – uh, article I read uh, called "Sometimes I Miss War," and this yes. guy Benjamin Sledge uh, says, "I hated war, but strange enough, I loved it too. I find myself wishing I was back overseas while driving alone or in the midst of a crowded party. Things were simpler. People understood me. I had deep relationships. Granted, there was no running water. I defecated in a barrel on a regular basis, but the laughter was real. The friends were real. The experience felt more real than ordering a coffee at a Starbucks while a woman." in athletic clothing berated the barista for getting her order wrong. And the point we made is that he wasn't bloodthirsty. That's, you know, he doesn't want to go back to war to shoot people. He missed it because he was brother hungry, right? In the war, they had a very clear mission that their fraternity was organized around, right? It it gave him company. He kept himself focused. Uh, You watch TV shows like the band, uh, band of brothers or read the book by Stephen Ambrose. Yeah, I was um, in the 101st Airborne, brother. Well, you know, you know about Dick Winters and all those guys then. Um, yep. and, and Ambrose does a really good job at uh, bringing this out in another book called Comrades that he wrote. But um, that it, it brings a level of clarity to your relationship. That's what fraternity does is that you need a guy that when you that teases you out of love. You need a guy that can tell you the hard truth. In a way yeah. that um, a woman, uh, uh, you'll react to a man in a way different than a woman, right? And yeah. it's, it's, you think about like you've been warning a friend forever about, say, I remember this. I was warning a friend about Benny Hen years and years ago. This guy's a false prophet, right? And I said it a hundred times, <laughs> and they they didn't listen to me. And then this other guy, yeah, you know, here's actually what the case was. It was a girl. She was a friend and a girl, and I'd warned her. And she didn't listen to me. And then this guy who she liked said, uh, Benny Hens a false prophet. 
And I remember saying, I, and that's when I realized Benny Ham was a false prophet. I was like, I've said that so many times. But now a guy says that you like, that you like, and then you listen. Well, that's, that's just life. You know, dads say something to their sons. You know, a lot of times these guys tell me I've told them things that their dad never told them. That might be true, but also maybe they, they, they weren't ready to receive it from their dad. Right. And there, there's a way of men and a way of women and men need friends. They need guys that will keep them accountable and they need guys that will um, shoot them straight. And yes. uh, fraternity, I, I think about, I didn't have, I grew up in a broken home. <clears throat> I was never abused or anything like that, not physically or really even mentally. It was more abdication and neglect. Um, but I always had lots of friends and that's still true today is that I have people that I've been friends with well over 20 years, 25 years now. And we talk almost every week, maybe two or three times. You know, I've got probably three or four guys like that in my life. And it's become very clear to me that that is not true of most people. And certainly people that are online a lot. And I I offend people every once in a while. I do this Facebook post about once a year that I'm not your friend. Um, (laughs) On Facebook? (laughs) I do it on Facebook because I'm like, I'm not your friend. And I don't care about you. Now that offends everyone, but I explain it usually because it's like, I really don't care about you. Like, just like I don't care about Africa. Now in the theoretic, do I care about Africa? Yeah, theoretically, but I don't know anyone over there anymore. I don't think about it very much. I don't care about it in the same way that I care about my church or my own community or whatever. I don't have any real relationships there. It's all conceptual. It's all in theory. Are we Facebook friends? Yes. Do you see my pictures and some of my thoughts? Yes. Do you know me? Do you know me when I'm not well? Do you know me when I'm good? Do you know the the nature of my marriage, my good dad? Uh, You know, like, have I gained a lot of weight suddenly? You know, have I lost a lot of weight? How how well do you know me? How well can you know someone through the internet? Not very well, right? It's pretty easy to cultivate an idea. We just don't have friends anymore and this is one of the great things that men need men men have we say it's kind of like two rails relationship you have a bunch of guys a band of brothers at some level and you have one woman right and and that's your wife and that's and we wanted to end the book there on on that point where almost every manhood book i've ever read defines a man in, um, in his relationship to being married. And while I think marriage is incredibly important, um, you can be a man and you can be a woman without ever being married, right? Right. You can. So you want me to jump into that last chapter? Yeah, well, I, brother, I, and I, I think it's uh, what I really um, – took away uh, towards the end of the book when you were talking about the importance of a good wife and then the importance of fraternity. Um, You compared it like to two tracks, you know, and the train, you know, and again, I, I I think people see the importance of, yeah, you know, if, if you get a good wife, you know, you've, obtained favor from the Lord, you got a good thing, 
But I don't think, brother, they they see the importance of this band of brothers, this fraternity, these other men that provoke us to love and to good works that keep us on track, that keep, you know, uh, you know, keep us accountable uh, to, to maintain, you know, the vision and mission in our life. And I just thought, brother, th- those things were so good, so excellent in the book. So, yeah, let's go on to this last chapter, the excellence of marriage. Yeah. So I think we circled back around this chapter to just how, um, while you shouldn't put a woman up on a pedestal, like she's an angelic being better than you in some way, marriage is, uh, is, is a massive step forward uh, when you find a wife and uh, a wife is a huge compliment to your mission. Um, she's not a replacement for it, but a compliment to it. She, she allows that to happen. Um, it's hilarious. I saw someone saying that we said a woman couldn't have a mission, that only a man could. That's what we said. It's a book called It's Good to Be a Man. If we write It's Good to Be a Woman, maybe we'll talk about that. But, um, but our missions are magnified through, through marriage. We're able to do things uh, that we never could do. And so I'm always amazed by the Proverbs 31 woman when you look at her, is that she – takes what her husband's done and she multiplies it and magnifies it and adds glory to it. Right. She glorifies it even the more. And, uh, it's, it's, it's a beautiful thing. And I, we wanted to to deal with that. We also want to deal with the idea of soulmates, um, or one itis where a lot of guys get in their head that they got to find this exact perfect woman, or there's only one woman for them. And when I was a youth pastor in, in a semi-charismatic church back in the day, there's always the guy who would say, God told me that this is the girl I'm going to marry. And you're like, no, he didn't. Um, did he tell her? Often not, right? <clears throat> and so <clears throat> these guys would say that. And But the, the reality is, whoever you say I do to, that person is functionally your soul, soulmate. And, and to be a little more flexible, looking for a woman who – uh, fears God, respects you, turns your blood up a little bit, um, and and really give yourself to that one woman building a household together. And there's a tendency for modern men to either turn women into angels or into devils, and they're not. They're they're mm. people creating the image of God with a feminine nature, um, and uh, women can. They're horrible, wicked terrible women in the world made very clear by lady folly in proverbs but as equally made clear by lady wisdom in proverbs there's there's um wonderful gems i mean my wife i just uh i told her i don't know if i could remarry the only reason i think about remarriage is just because of the young kids we have but i just just if she ever died i just caused trouble for the kingdom full time i guess um and she is, uh, she definitely has influence over me. Like the women, they kind of civilize us at some level. They bring a greater order to things. Yeah. And, you know, when I was a bachelor, at times I was content to <laughs> eat on the ground on top of a, with my plate on a box. 
or something, you know, you just, you didn't really care, but then, but then a wife comes and she sees all that you have and she beautifies it. You know, I've got paintings on my wall at my house and she put all these awesome bookshelves together and, um, she's made all this wonderful food for us and she's just a, a wonderful blessing. And so, uh, get your mission straight, start building some gravitas and, and virtue. And then that in itself is, uh, will start to attract women to you. They'll bring women into your orbit or when you kind of place yourself in their way by seeking them out, um, then they'll see, they'll start to see that you have something to offer. And so, uh, a wife is a huge blessing. Marriage is wonderful. And there's no way for us to turn this cultural rot back without marriage because marriage is um, where masculinity and femininity come together to produce children that we raise up as disciples that we fill the world with to fulfill both the creation mandate and the great commission. Absolutely. I, I just know in, in, in my life, brother, God blessed me with two wonderful women. I had 10 children with my first wife. She passed on. It was like what you were talking about, brother. And, and, um, and, uh, you know, raising 10 kids on the front line of the battle, uh, without a wife and a mother was obviously daunting. And, and I, I honestly believed I could live celebrate the rest of my days and would have been content to do that. But to everybody's horror, daddy wasn't mommy, you know, and I was trying to get in contact with my feminine side and it just wasn't working out. Um, but God brought beauty from ashes, brother. He raised up another yeah, woman to take me on with 10 kids. And, you know, brother, I, the, the wife, the mother, they, they're the glue, man. You know what I mean? They, they, they hold it together. And without them, we can't, we can't fulfill this this vision and mission. We can't fulfill the mandate. Um, and and I and I think you've probably seen this as a pastor, brother. How many men have had to give up the call of God on their life and obey the mandate simply because the wife and the mother was not willing? You know, yeah. And it, and it places this man between, you know his call from the Lord and then his love and commitment to his wife and the family. And I've seen so many men crushed brother in that circumstance. And so when you have a wife and a mother that knows the calling, knows their role, knows their function, um, you made mentions about Emily, like, my first wife, Liz, I, the first thing I said to her, our first so-called date, I said, honey, if you stick with me, it's going to get really intense. It's going to be intense. I mean, I didn't know exactly what all that meant, uh, but the fact of the matter, it was. It was very, very intense. And to the credit of my first wife, Michael, not one time, no matter what we went through, the good, the bad, and the ugly, she never once complained. And she told me right from the get-go, I will never, ever come between you and what the Lord has called you to do and to be. I will help you. And she kept that commitment, brother. And what a tremendous blessing that is. 
I remember so um, in um, oh, what is it? Hudson Taylor, A Man in Christ by J. Roger Steer or Roger Steer. Um, I remember his wife, his first wife's dying, and he says something to the effect of like he couldn't live without her or something to that effect. And she rebukes him <laughs> on her deathbed just to live for the Lord. And I don't, some of these men who've been so burned by pornography, so burned by, by wicked women, they forget how glory there's glorious men out there, right? Warriors for the Lord, men of virtue, men that get things done. There are glorious women. Right. Women that um, magnify you, that help you uh, stay, you know, stay on mission, help focus you. And Driscoll, Mark Driscoll's gone along. He's gone off the path, but he still has some quips that stick with me over the years. And the one that men are like trucks, the more weight you put on them, the straighter they drive. I've always liked that. I found it to be true. Yeah. And, and, and women and women do that. And uh, when you find that woman. And also, I think some of us are lucky. I think we, you know, lucky in a Christian sense. We find a a woman where it's just immediate. But even for Em and I, I mean, those first three years of our marriage are pretty rough. Yeah. And But these days, we rarely argue. It's very sweet. We work through things together. It's hard for me to surprise her or make a joke that she's not going to know. She's like... This has been with me a long time, you know, and, and it's, it's the, the wonderful um, agreement of two souls living life together for God's glory is, um, is, a, is a blessing and to watch our kids to grow up and know the Lord and, and see bits of her and bits of me and in a whole new person is, is just wonderful. So we wanted to end on a positive note of taking a step, working towards this, be, be a man, then pursue, um, pursue marriage well brother michael you have been a a treasure chest of knowledge wisdom and an understanding of god's word and specifically as it relates to biblical masculinity and manhood and we know how important that is when it comes to the future of the Lord's work in the earth. So buddy, I can't thank you enough for going the extra mile. We've had so much difficulty, you know, trying to make this work. Um, but you, you've hung in there, buddy. It was a pleasure. Thank you so much. Oh, bless you, buddy. And I just want to encourage the folks who are, uh, in both episodes, we're going to have a, a link to Michael's book. Hey, brother, Michael. Yes. Do you have any other links or resources? That, if you go uh, to it's good to be man.com, it's good to be a man.com. There's a newsletter that you can sign up for there. You'll see it in the on on the tabs to the left. We send out a weekly newsletter that's usually, you know, two thousand words every week. And we started working on it's good to be a husband a couple weeks ago. And okay. um, that the goal, I'm writing a book on the death of my daughter right now. Uh, so once I finish that, uh, I'll go full time into the, the manuscript there. We, we intend to have that manuscript turned in at the end of the year uh, to be printed next year. But the way Nan and I work is we use social media and our newsletter to kind of float ideas and see what sort of pushback we get and insights. So you'll see a lot of that, the content that's going to be in that book come out to that newsletter. 
Okay, well, brother, I will definitely have that link uh, in these episodes, along, of course, a link uh, to your book. And like I said, brother, I'm encouraging everyone everywhere, get this book to every man you know. Um, it's it. I know, brother, you said it, uh, at the beginning, you know, you didn't want to necessarily put together a timeless book, but a timely one. Well, quite frankly, I, I pray it's both, brother, because it's definitely timely. Uh, but, you know, when you have the truth of Scripture, it is timeless. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? No, thank so, you. So praise be to God. Well, thank you so much, buddy. Yeah. Amen. Amen. I right, bless you. Well, brothers and sisters, uh, that was Michael Foster and uh, his book. It's good to be a man. I pray that you uh, enjoyed uh, these two episodes. Not quite sure how it, what it's going to look like at the end. Um, but anyway, you keep pressing on to that high calling prize in Jesus name. God bless you, saints. Bye bye.